See, Jesus in his life, he said in John that it was his will. He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And the culmination of a life lived to the will of God came right down to this point. This is the defining moment. He's asking the Father whether he could take this cup of suffering away from him, this impending end of suffering in his life. And so as we look at this scene today, I want us to just have in a sense a definition of what could be a garden experience for you and I. And I think we can define it as a crossroads experience. A crossroads experience in our life that requires faith. And it's a crossroads experience in which we wrestle with God and His ways and His purposes. And they can come to us in many different ways. I'm very mindful this morning of Ty and Jante and their family here today. They have been, are working through one of those experiences in life. Sometimes stuff just hits us from out of left field, totally unexpected, and we're hit. And we just don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to cope with it. We don't know how God is working in the situation. If there's a God of love, why is he allowing this to happen? We wrestle. Other times in our lives, we wrestle over doing right and wrong. We know what God has told us how we should live because so much of his will is revealed in the Bible. And we wrestle. Do I make that choice or this choice? I can remember as an eight-year-old in a little shop in Wellsford, moral dilemma, do I steal this pencil or not? I didn't have to seek God's will. It had been revealed I knew to steal was wrong. But then there's the third situation in life where, in a sense, we've been led by God into a circumstance. Here in the garden, Jesus was going forward with the call of God on his life. It wasn't fate. It was the call in his spirit of being a disciple, of following his Father's will. And it wasn't something imposed. It's something he had chosen to do. Jesus said in his, to his disciples earlier on in the book of Matthew, he says, if you want to become my followers, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who, want to lo then those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? Or in some translations it says, and what will they give in exchange for their soul? You see, it's not our natural instinct to take ourselves into a garden context. But Jesus with his disciples, Jesus with us as his disciples today, calls us to sacrifice our own agenda 
and to look at our lives and the way in which we're living our lives and to weigh up whose priorities am I living for. And I think so often as Christians in our middle-class culture, we can get so caught up in the trappings of this world and that our agenda is very much the same as our unbelieving neighbour. Our life doesn't really show much difference. Yes, we go to church on Sunday. We may not have quite as wild a parties. But really our agenda is much the same. We've almost morphed into the culture, the cultural agenda, and lost the agenda of Christ, of being a follower of him. But stuff happens in our lives. It either comes upon us, just through being human. But there's also a call as disciples to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. To sacrifice our agenda for his agenda. And so the question is, and what I want to look at today, is when we're faced with these times of adversity in our lives, what can we learn from this scene with Jesus in this real time of torment and wrestling with God that can apply to us so that we can cope with life better, so we can live more freely and powerfully for Christ. So how do I prepare? How do I cope? I think the first thing we can learn from the life of Christ is that he understood the big picture. He knew the game plan. Because earlier on, before the scene, we find that Jesus talks to his disciples about his impending death. He says, look, go prepare the Passover, but following the Passover, I will be handed over to the authorities and I will be crucified. He could see what was coming and that the culmination of his 33 years on this earth, he could see the fruit of that was going to be, is going to be nailed. It's quite common in those days for people to be crucified. It wasn't unusual. But he could see a life that had confronted religious authorities, political authorities. There was only one outcome. But also, what's really wonderful about this big picture which Jesus could see was at the Passover, he takes the cup, and he presents them to them, to them and says, you know, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink it, but I will not drink it again until in my Father's kingdom I drink it with you. He could see beyond the present and that this time of suffering which was ahead of him was just a small part of the journey. He was looking forward to the time when he'd be with his disciples and drink that cup with him. You see, often in life, we get caught up with the present. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when Satan tempted them with power, says, you could be like God, knowing good and evil. They didn't think of the long-term consequences of their behavior. And the rest is history as a result of their short-term gratification. They made a decision that was foolish for them and for humanity. 
And I wonder so often in life when we get in the pit and we're struggling with life, or even if we're just making moral decisions of right or wrong, we just think about the moment, what's good for me now, rather than what its impact it will have on other people in the long term. And what we see in the life of Jesus is one who had the big picture. He knew the whole game plan in broad terms. And we as Christians today, he's given us the big picture. He's shown us that this life is transitory. It is short term. And he calls us as, as his disciples to lose our lives for him. Because in a day to come, we will live in eternity with him. The things which we may feel as though we've given away now will be nothing compared to what we will receive for being obedient and living for him in this life. But what we also see in this passage is Jesus was relational. He had become connected with his Christian community around him. He had built community five times in just this chapter alone. We see Jesus' desire to be with his disciples. In verses 18 and 20, he says he talks about sharing the Passover with his disciples. We saw on the screen a moment ago him taking the disciples with him into the garden. He took three of them aside with him to pray and to be with him. He sought community. Jesus wasn't a recluse, a reclusive prophet that had come to this earth with an agenda in mind to save humanity, lived in a cave, came out of his clay cave and came down to the village or to the city and stirred up the religious authorities, confronted the establishment, then go back at night to his cave, down again the next day, grumpy, stirring up trouble, way he goes again. Finally, the authorities come and get him, they nail him to a cross, He's done a sacrificial thing. Yep, that had to be done. And he's gone, ascended into heaven, sits back down on his couch, puts on the TV, watches angels dancing with the stars. Mission accomplished. That is not Jesus. That is not our Savior. What Jesus does show to us in his humanity is that God is a relational God. God desires relationship. And Jesus embodied that and connected himself with the people around him. And he built a relational community for him to journey with through this life. And the reason was this, was because he was human. Because the way God has created us is to have relationship with one another and with him. And he built this team around him to share the mission, to be part of the journey, and you can see when the time gets tough, he took them aside with him to journey with him at that point. So how do we cope in adversity in life? We need to have built community, people around us, close to us, to share the journey. And within that group, we always have two or three people. Well, it's wise to have some people who are really close to us, an inner circle of friends. We read in chapter 26, verse 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit there while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. 
Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here, stay awake with me. See, Peter, James, and John, he took them aside from his general group of friends who knew him well, and he opened up even more to them. He took them right into the inner gallery. You see, Peter, James, and John, he had done other things with them which he hadn't done with his other disciples. He'd taken them to the high spots in life. He took them to the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was changed in bodily form before them. He was transfigured. He shone as a bright light. Moses, Elijah, there was this conversation taking place. Peter, James, and John observed it all. They heard God say, this is my son, hear him. At that same time, Jesus told them, look, I will suffer at the hands of the authorities. He also told those three people at that time, keep it quiet. Keep this to yourself, what you have observed. So they had been close to him before. And in life, when we are in times of suffering, we need to have those people whom we can draw in, who we can just open up and be transparent to. And as you're listening this morning, you may reflect on contexts in life which you have been through in your journey. Because really life is a broad garden experience. We all have them at some time and to some degree. As I've reflected on my life as I've prepared this message and how equipped am I, I've looked at situations in my life and I've got the NCEA, you know, um, failed, 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 or not achieved. Because I haven't always had those networks around me. But we see Jesus, we can learn from him how he built those relational networks. But we also see in this scene in having this inner circle, we see Jesus' struggle. And Jesus says to them, I am grieved even to death. He was totally transparent with these three guys. Being grieved to death, I don't know. What does that mean? Was he suicidal? Did he just want to just give up at that point? I know, and I've been out fishing and got seasick. Mate, I just want to curl up and go. <laughs> Nothing. I just want to out of it. It's the pits. I suggest something more significant was happening here. But what we see here is that Jesus is showing his true humanity. Jesus was identifying with us, showing that he was struggled like we will struggle. You know, I think sometimes we have this notion in the back of our minds about Jesus. Look, he didn't really struggle. He was God. You know, those were crocodile tears. He was God on earth. When he was on the cross, he, wouldn't, he really felt the pain as if he was human. That's incorrect. Because how could God take on human form be Emmanuel, God with us, and trick us. Is that consistent with the nature of God? Would he deceive us? So Jesus in his humanity is identifying totally with us. 
totally with the struggles which we would experience in our own lives, feeling the pain. The Hebrew writer talks about how Jesus learnt obedience through the things which he suffered. We read in the Gospels how Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, all very human things. He grew in knowledge he had to learn. We also read in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He could see the big picture. And so we never want to lose sight of the humanity of Christ, how human he was. He was totally human like you and I. And that's the great thing. And Jesus invites us to commit our lives to him, to come to him and surrender our lives. We have someone who's walked our path, who's felt the pain, who's been through the struggles. I would suggest greater struggles than what you and I have. He's a relational God, and he wants us to draw him to him. But fifthly, he had a prayer discipline. In Luke's account of this scene, I really like the way it starts off. And Luke says, as was the custom, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and prayed. I wonder what someone would write about your prayer life or my prayer life. What is the custom? Is it just before we go to sleep at night? Or is it just before we get to work in the morning, a quick prayer about the painful boss? Or is it just a quick prayer when we see a cop going the other way? Did he have his radar on or off? Or is it a car park prayer? But the beautiful thing here is, as was the custom. You see, in facing life, we need to have things in place to get us through life. It's very hard to learn to pray when you get to a crisis if you haven't really built that relationship with God beforehand. Mind you, crises can cause us to change our behavior and realize our inadequacies, the need to get closer to other people, the need to get closer to God, the need to learn how to pray. But coupled with prayer, we can have the custom of prayer, but we also, to cope with these garden experiences in life, need to know how to talk to the Father how to hear his voice. We hear that powerful prayer on the screen today. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. Here we see in this prayer two things. The divine necessity of Jesus following through what he had been called to do. And we see his own willingness. He's willing to do it, but he's saying, Father, is there any other way? If there is, that would be great. And this cup could pass from me. You see, his prayer life was transparent. He went on about it. We saw on the screen three times. He just went back to God. He went back to God. To wrestle with why. And so often we're in these garden experiences, the big why, the question, 
And we see here in Jesus' life, he just worked away at God and just wanted to sense what is it really I need to do here. And the interesting thing is this. We don't hear any answer. You see, when Jesus was baptized, God spoke to those around him and says, hear him, he's the son, my son in whom I am well pleased. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration before Peter, James and John, the voice came from heaven, affirming Jesus and his mission. Here in the garden in despair. Isn't this so true? So often we feel as though where is God? How do I hear God in those contexts? Wouldn't it have been a great part to the scripture, to the story here where God came in and something dramatic happened and that could be the role model for our lives that we could expect in such garden experiences if we humble ourselves and we struggle with God, this will happen. There's no dramatic intervention. I wonder whether it's because of that relational factor that he was in tune with his father, his motivation, his desire for living was not to gratify his own being, but to give glory to the father. So it wasn't really a thing of trying to get out of this. It's just determining, is this really necessary that I keep going on this path? And if this is what you want me to do, yep, I'll do it. But I want to be sure. But amidst all that, Often in these struggles in life, these garden experiences, the inner group can let us down. The people we've confided in just don't, aren't able to go that extra mile. We read here three times he prays, three times he comes back to these guys. Reading verse 40. So you could not stay awake with me an hour. Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the, the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's two ways we can look at this passage. This context of the, the support crew of Jesus. Perhaps you at some time have been taken into someone's inner sanctuary, into their struggles on their life. And really... You've gone to sleep on them. You haven't really been able to follow through. Because it's a privileged position, isn't it, when someone opens up their heart to you and their struggles. But we see here with Jesus, I think the beautiful thing here is he doesn't condemn them. We read on another time, verse 43. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples again and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? In other words, how much sleep and rest do you need while I'm struggling? Well, not quite. But this is the love of God. The love of the Father through Jesus. He wants to draw us to him, draw us to relationship. He doesn't want to condemn us. But people, there are a lot of people in this world today who've walked away from the faith, walked away from Jesus because of, oh, that group of Christians, they were pathetic. Here was I struggling, they weren't there for me at all. 
or his attitude when this happened. These types of things are very real. And I think the key thing to learn from this when we're having these times is that the most dependable one is Jesus. The most dependable one is God and Christ who revealed himself to us. That's the one who is our anchor. That's the one we can be totally secure in. And so as we come out of this garden scene, the great thing is there's a wonderful outcome. Because what we see at the end here is a resolute Jesus. We see him in the middle of the scene, tormented, grieving as unto death. But it finishes up in verse 45. He comes to his disciples and he says, See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's something wonderful about that conclusion to that scene. He arises. This is my purpose. This is my reason for being. This is what I've got to do. Come on, guys, let's go and do it. I liken it to the analogy of being in the tunnel. You know, sports people before a big game, crowds are all there. They're in the dressing room. Coaches, pet talk, wrestling with what they've got to do. Come out of the dressing room and finally they get into the tunnel. The forward momentum of the team. There's no turning back. They've got to go out in the field now and do it. We are equipped. We've got to do it. And here we see a resolute Jesus facing this traumatic days ahead of suffering and pain. And he says to his disciples, arise. For my betrayer is here. He didn't try to run. He didn't try to avoid. If he was trying to get out of the scene, he wouldn't have even gone to the Mount of Olives because the spies would know that's where he regularly went to. He didn't go off somewhere else to pray. He went to his regular place, easily discovered. He wasn't trying to avoid the mission. And so as we look at this context and we bring the principles forward into our own lives, a quote which I read this week, week by Stanley Grins, which he says, the key to living in the present does not lie with our abilities, but with the provision we derive from the risen God. Look, we can go to all sorts of self-help courses to help us with our skill set, how to equip ourselves for life, and lots of practical things. But at the end of the day, to work through life, and it's ups and it's downs. It's our relationship with the risen Lord. Our relationship with Jesus. You may be here this morning and this relationship with Jesus is very distant. You may have at some time had a close relationship, but stuff has happened. Situations in life did not work out. And so you've turned your back on God because you feel as though he's given you a wrong deal. I encourage you to think again today. And as we take communion, think of the big picture. Think of communion as showing us that someone has died on our behalf so that we may be free to live in relationship with God, so that we may be, feel free of the 
burdens of this life and that knowing that we have another life to live in eternity. I can remember once with a friend of mine in a teaching context, and he says to me, we must tell, make it clear to these students that life is not a dress rehearsal. We only get one chance at it. Life for a believer, for a Christian, is an eternal journey. It's not just here. This is the small game. This is the warm-up. The big game is yet to be played, where we live in freedom from suffering, freedom from the consequences of sin. We live in the fullness of our humanity, no bodies that groan, and in relationship with Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. That is the big game.